So uh, we have Aldo Solazo, uh, we've got Jose Louis, uh, we've got Mike Pryor and Sushant Pema who will be joining us shortly. Um, so I'll start with a couple of questions just to introduce you guys to the audience. Let's move on to Jose Luis for that time. Um, so you've been interestingly working with, you've, you've worked with OMA, you've worked with Google, you've worked with Samsung, Nike, Autodesk, and probably more, right? Um, and you've got 12 or 13 research papers out there. Uh, is, I mean, I've got all that right, right? Um, let me please say I haven't really worked for OMA or Google. I have for Samsung. I've worked for them as clients for other companies right. that have worked. But I have worked at right, Autodesk right. and I have worked at Fathom Information Design. And I have worked for a large engineering company. And then we had those clients. So I've worked for them, but okay. as clients of the companies that I've worked for. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, with all that experience, uh, what brings you back to teaching? Uh, I mean, you teach at Harvard and, and you've also started parametric camp on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So what, what is uh, it about teaching that, that brings you back? I don't know. I think, uh, so my mother is a teacher, um, and my grandfather was a professor at the university and my great grandfather. So. I think maybe there's something about family uh, or like lineage. I don't know. But I think my main motivation these days for teaching is definitely the fact that um, even though I've worked in large projects, I've built big buildings, or at least I've been part of the team who have made that happen. And I've built a lot of code that has made it out in the wild and it's people are using. Um, I, think, I think teaching is by far, far, far one of the most one of the clearest forms that I feel I have an impact on people's lives. Because the moment you teach someone something, it's, it becomes actionable information. It becomes uh, a life-changing deal because those people start having more capacities. They have start having a greater understanding of the work that they do, the technical platform that they use or how their work can change and can improve uh, the built environment or other people's lives. And I think the, the experience of being able to one-on-one -on -one facilitate that for people and giving them that experience, I think that's, for me, one of the most rewarding experiences that I engage in daily. And I think that's the, that's still the core of the motivation why I still keep doing this and why I want to keep doing this. Amazing. That's good. Um, Aldo, uh, I'm not sure if you caught the question earlier uh, here before your network. You got it? Yeah. So, so yes, we can end it. Right. I mean, uh, first of all, it was a great answer by Jose. I agree that uh, for sure uh, it's uh, a very important moment when you teach, where you also deliver your knowledge uh, to, to a different person, uh, to a different sensibility as well. And the interesting part, the beautiful thing that happens is how students uh, have to make it uh, theirs. No? 
and now they somehow push it further than uh, what you thought. Uh, and now through this, uh, I think, constant chain, we are building our culture, our identity. So, I mean, I think it's one of the most important cornerstones of our society. But on the other side, as a company owner, I can tell you that being in education in this specific moment is a key aspect to keep your company competitive, to also monitor what is happening in an environment where ideas are flowing extremely quickly and providing uh, a ground where to uh, deal with technology uh, the experimental way through creativity creativity and through a collaborative i think uh, environment where uh, different experts can join you in the in the research that you develop i think it's super important so it's a, a daily inspiration from the students and i guess also a daily inspiration as a company or what technology and what culture in general can uh, can bring to our society to improve our ideas and solutions. Yeah, these are really, I mean, really good uh, points that you've made. Uh, coming to Mike, um, you're currently the CDO of, of Design Morphine and uh, you're of course the author of Pufferfish. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard the story behind Pufferfish, uh, but what's the story behind Design Morphine? Well, how, how did that come to be? Yeah, I mean, it was really started by, uh, originally by Pavlina and Sveti, uh, and then I came on in the second year. Um, but I mean, the, the kind of idea is that's uh, just like a, a, a new way or kind of of education that doesn't have to be locked into a kind of like traditional university um, and doesn't have to make you, you know, broke uh, as a student. Um, and you can get, you know, just as much, if not, um, you know, more, sometimes more valuable information for, for your career. Um, I mean, <clears throat> funny, you know, funny thing, a, a lot of universities um, that do all these kind of crazy, interesting things don't actually teach, uh, for instance, the software. I mean, a lot of times you're expected to kind of learn the software. Um, or you're taught it very quickly, um, unless you have people like uh, Jose there who who are doing it. <laughs> but you know, a lot of these classes are very like theoretical and like conceptual based, um, and you're you're kind of largely expected to learn the, the kind of software aspect um, on your own time um, or for short amounts of time from like kind of software based tutors. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, we, we can just, you know, teach those, you know, those important aspects that, uh, you know, I think that are pretty transferable to like different companies and organizations where you might want to, you know, you might want to work uh, afterwards. Um, so that the idea was kind of always like this, this kind of newer, newer, um, quicker, more direct way of learning like the important stuff without like the kind of fluff uh, in a way. Um, it's just just kind of like my 
my understanding and my opinion. I mean, even when you when you go to work in an architecture office, it's not as it's it's not as or as rarely as theoretical as it is in academia. Um, it, it's you know usually more more practical. I think um, you know th there's kind of you know at least in architecture there's there's always this kind of disconnect between like that that kind of more traditional like let's say MR academia um, versus like actual practice um, in my experience so yeah I mean that's just kind of like the, the a main kind of reason there it's and then, and then all the tutors we use and we're always looking for tutors that are actually like working in these offices as well you know like so we are getting taught by people that are actually working they're not like you know, just professors let's say is it time for debate Great. i'm really interested in mike's um in like that whole the whole can of worms like he just opened but maybe maybe we can do that before we introduce sushant yeah we'll come to that yeah yeah sushant has finally joined us so um yes hi we were doing a, a round of sort of questions on on uh, that sort of introduce a little bit of background about all the speakers. So, um, yeah, firstly, let I me apologize for jumping in a little late. Yeah. So, there was some network <laughs> issue. Uh, glad I managed to fix it and be here in this, uh, you know, excited, exciting discussion. And yeah, super thrilled to uh, be a part of this. So, hi, Jose. Hi, Michael. Hi, Aldo. Hey, Pranit. Aldo is at a beach having, having oh. a great time. <laughs> so uh yeah so sushant um i think a lot of people know about you right your your journey uh you've worked at mofa in india you've worked with zhj and you started ratlab and i think around 2017 you started uh, ratlab education so uh, what i'm curious about is when did teaching actually start for you when when did you decide that, yeah, you need to start RATLAB education. What was that moment? Yeah, so I think it's been a, uh, you know, kind of a sequential, uh, you know, step-by-step -step process which really happened, which triggered this whole idea of doing something for academia. Uh, we had started, like myself and Pradeep, who, uh, you know, we started the other co-founder of RATLAB. We initiated uh, RATLAB as a very small group and organization in 2012. This is when we were doing, almost finishing our masters at the MTech, uh, at the Architectural Association. And uh, at that time, we were, uh, you know, part of quite a few conferences. There were a lot of, uh, you know, symposiums happening at the AA, at, at the Bartlett, uh, you know, and a few other universities in UK as well. So I was fortunate to be a part of many of those symposiums which also gave me a bit of uh, you know hands-on experience on a lot of workshops and uh, you know teaching ex uh, learning experiences i would say uh, from from very interesting uh, you know tutors who came from different parts of the world to teach us about design technology something about design technology so idea kind of triggered right at that time that you know we were very interested in doing something in the academic uh, domain and uh, I think there was a conference in 2013 at Bartlett. This is after I graduated uh, from the AA. I was working at Robofold, which is uh, you know company specializing in robotics. 
and this is before I joined Zaharid Architects. So there was a conference happening at the UCL Bartlett, which was called Smart Geometry. Uh, and there were quite a few pioneers of the computational world over there, which, uh, you know, I, I came across. And uh, uh, so hmm. that time, I mean, the synergies that I saw, the lot of innovation that I saw across different clusters, which were there, and there were some cluster masters, and there were plenty of professionals and students being a part of that. I think we pretty much decided the back of our head that, you know, like we want to do something with academia and something has to be, it can't be a part of the generic system uh, because that's what smart geometry was at that time. Uh, and I think it started from there. And then, of course, slowly I was part of ZHA and a few more conferences and moved to the US. And uh, there as well, we were, uh, you know, communicating with a few fab labs uh, I think it was called Sumlab, uh, which was doing a lot of fabrication and later on, uh, you know, doing workshops and stuff. At Robofold as well, I was assisting uh, Greg in, in some of the workshops that was centered around Grasshopper plugins that they were developing. So it kind of all started step by step, you know, without a conscious effort that it'll all come together into an academic wing in an organization. But uh, I think it all, uh, the whole decision ignited even more when I came back to India in uh, 2014, 15. And uh, I realized that uh, nobody's talking of computational design. Nobody, everybody just knows about parametric and parametricism by the generic, uh, you know, stuff that you could see online. Uh, and everybody just associated parametricism is, is what Patrick started in ZHA. Uh, is the only, you know, organization who was into parametric design. So that's when we started venturing into, you know, doing independent workshops. And yeah, that's pretty much how it all kind of initiated for us. It's awesome. I didn't know you were in that smart geometry. I was part of the organization that year. I was I was helping okay. with the workshops. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I could see you smiling when I mentioned smart geometry and I could somehow uh, kind of foresee that that there might be a connection remember that like, <laughs> like, like the entry hall with the elevators and everybody just crammed in that tiny space yes <laughs> that was crazy yeah, yeah it's crazy it's amazing awesome so yeah Jose, you had uh, something to ask mike oh yeah i want to prove mike on and what he was saying before because like i personally relate a lot to that to that feeling of of, um, let's say, applied knowledge or more technical knowledge, things that get you going and get you um, working and get you designing things very fast. And the other end, which can be the more theoretical or the more high level or the more abstract thinking of how computation and how all these tools can help you be a better designer. I think I find myself always struggling where to set myself in, and that's Kind of the two hats I have right now. I teach in higher education, and um, I try to come to that experience and to bring a lot of like higher level thinking in that sense. But I also have like my perhaps my more technical arm, which is parametric CAM, which is more about like ah, let's just tutorials, learn how to code, and blah blah blah. And <clears throat> I wonder. So here's a question for Mike, for example. Like, where do you think the right level is? 
between those two? Or where do you think, what's the occasion for indulging in one or the other? I think, I mean, I think like if you're talking about like, I mean, for me, I, like I'm interested in kind of computational design. Like, so um, not so much architecture, like because architecture is like a whole other thing, you know? It's its it's whole other kind of subset there. But for me, like the 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 important thing is just like teaching like people how to solve problems um, and how to think like a problem solver. Um, but you know, like the 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 thing that I don't think is important, but what happens often is in architecture, it's like studios and like the the kind of the the process or like the whole driving force behind the thing is like how to design like your professor design, which is kind of not what I'm like, what I don't think is okay or like what I'm not into, you know? Um, because especially if it's like a well-known professor who has a style that everyone knows is that professor's style, it's like, like, what are you going to benefit from doing their style? Like, because they're, they're the ones that are, you know, you know, famous or popular for this kind of style. So like, what are you going to really do with it? You know, um, or and especially even more when it's like a, a kind of niche style and then like what office is going to want to use that style? You know, so it's like kind of like, what are you actually paying and, and investing time in learning? Um, like it might be like really, really cool and really complex and really, you know, interesting, but what, like, what are you doing with that knowledge afterwards? Because you can't, like that person, uh, whoever's the, the educator ever, has already established that as their kind of thing and their, you know, you know whatever they are with that. Uh, but the chances of you being the one popular for it is is pretty slim, you know. Like, so I don't. It, it's just like a kind of weird thing, like <laughs> to, the the whole like kind of academia of of you know architecture it's just like a, it's a bit weird um to me that you see these studios where every project looks exactly the same so and i just wonder where are these people using these skills afterwards <laughs> and i i absolutely relate to that but is it fair to say but it sounds to me then that maybe you're you don't you're not so opposed to the idea of like teaching higher level concepts or more abstract computational thinking mm, sounds like yeah. you have some energy against uh, the studio, studio. Yeah. Well, I'm not against it. I just wonder, like, what are people doing? With it? You know, like, like I'm not like actively advocating against it, but it's just still like, like what? I, I I feel like it's like kind of misleading, and then a lot of people end up not being able to get jobs or, you know, do you know like, I don't. Know, it's just kind of like what, like what are you doing with these things? Like. That's just, that's what like, I always think too. Like, like even like if you just think about pavilions, like why are everyone everyone's doing pavilions, right? But what are all these pavilions doing afterward? Like, what are people doing with pavilion knowledge besides teaching more pavilions? You know, like what pavilion knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> Your catalog. I think a relevant question here is is uh, is something that a lot of the community members have also asked uh, that you know what is more important learning actual software and and you know workflows skills that i mean today you know tech related skills or is it 
the actual uh, the actual experience of working in a studio and working on projects working on design briefs what what has a, a bigger impact on your architecture and your overall your education i don't think you can have one without the other it's like <clears throat> i mean i'm not sure you can be a mathematician and know a lot of mathematics if you never solve any problem you know so and and problem solving is kind of what you do when you are working at an office or a studio or whatever and then you're applying all this set of skills that you have learned technical software whatever or more high level i think what i was trying to get yeah. to you was was that um, one of the problems that I'm finding these days is that a lot of what we teach in, at, the, at the instrumental, at the tool level, at the software level, etc., and a lot of the tools that we also produce, like Mike, he's doing an amazing job with Pufferfish and everybody else who's doing their own plugins, etc., um, all that work in a way has an expiration date because at some point we're going to move on from Grasshopper, from Rhino into some of the software, or there will be some other parametric modeler or whatever, something will happen online, web-based. So, so that knowledge, the tool knowledge will kind of expire probably at some point. But there will be something about the computational thinking that you have learned okay. using that tool that is valuable. And it has, much, it has a much longer expiration date, if you will. I find myself a lot of the time thinking like how much of a tool or a particular software I'm teaching in my university courses and how much I should actually be focusing on the higher level concepts that are behind those tools and just using those tools as illustration of those concepts. And that's why, for example, one of my favorite lectures that I teach, for example, is um, transformations and the idea of using a 4 by 4 matrix to represent motion, to represent translation, rotation, escalation in three-dimensional space, right? Which is something that then can be applied with any tool, any library, any whatever, you know, but it, you require the conceptual knowledge first. So I think there's something to be said about, I don't know, the work that we do at the instrumental level, being applied, being practical, but being a reflection or being an application of these other high level ideas that perhaps are more difficult to grasp and that are typically more addressed in higher educational environments, which don't get me wrong, I don't think it should. I think they should also be more available out there for everyone. And that's a lot of, of the work that I'm trying to do myself to make all this knowledge a bit more accessible to the general audiences. It's just that sometimes we might have the tendency to just focus on the tool because it's it's what's gonna get us it's what's gonna get us a job right away. And it's what's going to have like a very tangible short-term impact on our life but um investing a little bit on the longer term knowledge i think has its value as well and i think with this and i think with this i'm saying exactly the same as michael was saying before it's just it's just coming from yeah. my perspective of, of teaching in higher education i think yeah i mean i think it's pretty obvious too like if you um if you just look at like even just all the different softwares. I mean, they're all basically the same tool. I mean, they're the same. It's not like, that's why it's good. Like, I think not to like just lock into one software, you know, like, or one, cause it can just go away tomorrow, right? Like grasshopper can just be done tomorrow. You know, you know, like whatever. 
um, you know, like me personally, like I, I'm spending like a lot of time in Houdini now these days. Um, I'm using Grasshopper mostly for work, but uh, like personal stuff, you know, I'm using Houdini because it's just like a lot faster for what I'm interested in right now. Um, but they're all the same. I mean, the tools, they're all the same. They're, they just call things differently sometimes, you know, but, you know, one thing calls something move, the other calls it displace, you know, but it's, one other calls it translate. I mean, it, it, there's, they're all the same. So as long as understanding like the concepts and the core concepts and, and what these things do. Um, and, and just like how to use those. I mean, that's what I try to do with, with pufferfish is kind of consolidate like concepts like because there are some things that i think you don't need to it, it's like learning code like you don't need to know everything you just need to know like what you need for the kind of task you're you're trying to do you know like i think even i, I would bet even the developers of c sharp don't know everything that there is in c sharp you know like it, it's that's the other thing is like you don't want to try to get to or know too much you don't need to know everything Especially with like all the internet and, and research, uh, right. so it's good also like if you're studying to kind of focus on what you need, um, but understanding what you need is, is kind of like the, the difficult part and the kind of what I think we all should be trying to teach people to think that way to to, to find what you need to get kind of to the the result or solution. Um, Sushant, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very important to discuss about the whole aspect of, you know, computational thinking or design yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. and yeah. inculcate yeah. that into, into the whole, uh, you know, uh, pedagogy of, uh, you know, teaching tools, because what's happening nowadays is of course, everybody wants to learn tools, but essentially we as educators, uh, you know, really want to focus on teaching, uh, you know, an aspect of design or thinking, which is something which can't happen in uh, on a short term basis as well. So this is where we kind of still try to juggle around and try to keep a balance between the two, because tools are something which can be learned in a limited span of time. It's a very objective thing which you can teach someone. Whereas you talk of design thinking or computational thinking or problem solving, these are slightly subjective as well and, and require a, a, a much larger time duration uh, to teach and for anyone to, to, to learn and inculcate as well. So you have to kind of find the balance between the two, which is what at least we try to do and have been trying to do uh, and you know change, change the way we are conducting different programs and workshops to make sure that one, you know, does not really get stuck to tools because, you know, as, as all of you have already said, uh, the tools will disappear one day and the technology is changing really fast. So it is going to be replaced by something else. Um, so we don't want to be left, left with uh, a knowledge of, you know, five software where they are not really in use and you don't know how to use them and utilize them, uh, in a workflow in, in any kind of design environment. So I think uh, it, it, it's a challenge for everyone, which I think everyone tries to solve in their own ways, uh, where you try to, you know, inculcate both the aspects of teaching 
tools and a thinking aspect of it and uh, you know the application of tools something we still trying to explore and i feel uh, you know longer duration programs are are, are the ones to to un, uh, to go for uh, if anyone wants to learn something uh, you know in a holistic level rather than you know i mean there are plenty of webinars and stuff which we also do and all of you guys are also doing uh but again for us from a student's perspective it is very important that they choose what they want to learn and how it can help them in their you know respective professions and and uh, journeys yeah i think one of the most uh, like one question that i hate the most is like when people ask you like what software you made something in and i'm just like it doesn't yeah. matter you know like it like that's not it's not like really the point you know and and for instance, we have one uh, one guy uh, who's actually teaching at the next uh, city next to he's he's attended like every one of our webinars, and I always see these like amazing results he posts. And then he recently told me after like a year that he's been taking all of our webinars, but recreating them in Cinema 4D. So not using the software we're teaching, but just like doing the workflows, but in Cinema 4D instead of like grasshopper or whatever whatever so i thought that was like really cool you know so it, it's like software doesn't really matter like just you can figure out how to do it in, in, in most any software like obviously not like paint or something like that but you know the, this kind of software that allows you know coding i don't know maybe you could do something with paint but Maybe, maybe Jose, you feel, I feel like you would be able to hack paint or something. <laughs> Jose, <laughs> might be your next tutorial. <laughs> if anyone can hack paint in this call, I think it's you, definitely. <laughs> I, I have a similar, I have a similar, um, this, this person that joins the parametric cam live streams all the time and everything I do, he wants to write it in Python. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Why not? He has his own repo, <laughs> and then everything we do, he just like does like a Python mirror. Because <laughs> yeah. like, of course, Jose, I, I recall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just coming to that. I recall you hate Python. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the running joke. Like, Jose doesn't do Python. <laughs> I don't know Python either, so. <laughs> So I think uh, let, let's come to, I think, the hottest topic that that we've been asked uh, for this panel discussion, and that's the impact of COVID on education, right? Uh, and I think we have two uh, perspectives here from, from all four of you. I think Aldo and Jose will have a, have a pretty good idea of how it's affected, uh, you know, stuff at IAC and Harvard and, and Mike and uh, Sushant would have uh, a really good idea of how it is, how it's impacted edutech. And, and so, uh, Alu, maybe you could start and, and give us your... very very first uh, thing to say is that when it started, uh, since in IAC, uh, we've been <laughs> uh, trained to get ready to any possible change. I think we've been experiencing uh, teaching in the forest or teaching... Uh, I mean, in the middle of uh, crazy places, uh, many different movies. projects. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> back in this moment. <laughs> I mean, I think 
we we were very fast in adapting to the digital um, the digital format, but also we started to explore last year uh, hybrid format uh, controlling robots remotely. I know that Kunal is a good friend of Jose. Uh, every time he tells me, uh, and with Kunal and Alex Dubor, we've been uh, also uh, organizing workshop uh, where students were immediately. I think it was three weeks after controlling robots from uh, their own room. Uh, we also started to uh, dispatch a couple of printers uh, and materials to our students during the the very beginning of the pandemic. But now, uh, I mean, after uh, almost one year, I mean, after one year. I have to tell you that we are uh, constantly teaching in a hybrid format, uh, even uh, in Barcelona. So we do theoretical classes all online and I don't have any problem at all. Uh, I found it, uh, I mean, very interesting in a different way. Uh, and on the other side, we've been uh, inviting and connecting with uh, instructors from the opposite side of the world in a way that was extremely, extremely easy. Uh, while we try to balance uh, the, the experiential aspect of accessing materials and machines that we still believe uh, has to be run, uh, I mean, in a lab. But we somehow are still are also starting to explore how to connect with those instruments uh, in, a, in a remote way. So I, I have to say it was a very interesting uh, experience. Uh, and our students were uh, very flexible and dynamic in uh, adjusting together with us. Uh, Jose, what about your experience with this? I am, I very much relate to what Aldo was saying. Uh, COVID has been terrible for humanity, hands down. Um, yet you always try to make some lemonade out of things, right? So in my experience, what I think COVID has helped us realize is that we can, fortunately, at least in higher education, we can rely a little more on digital technologies and uh, remoteness than we used to. Because especially for the kind of courses that I teach in particular, there traditionally we are teaching them in a room full of people with computers, etc. But they're, honestly, they're isn't such a great need for doing that anymore these days because um and the idea that the idea that leveraging digital technology so creating content it's pre-recorded that it's online that it's more technical and that it works as support for the class is something that we should have probably been doing already before covid you know there was no need for uh, a pandemic to hit so that we could all understand that being on a zoom call every once in a while it's okay and um, and I think also understanding that a, a hybrid model, so a model where you have some in-class present time, but you have offline content that you can make as support for your courses, I think that's a really good model that is working really well, actually. So I was fortunate enough to give those things a try before COVID. So I was already recording all the lectures that in the course that I teach at Harvard, I was putting them online. We were catering to questions from the audience. We were making the whole experience a bit more participatory globally. And the result was great. And it was also great also for the people who were participating actively in the university, because the idea that they had all this digital support released a lot of the stress that happens when you are in a class 
and you feel like you need to pick up every single word that the professor is saying, and if you don't, or if you miss a line of code, whatever, there's no way to go back to that. Being digitally supported means that that stress is gone because you always have a backup of the material, and therefore you can go back to that content, meaning that you can focus on really uh, uh, having a better experience of the in-person time that you have, and then focusing on what's important, which is the higher level concepts. Um, so that has worked really well for us, for example. And then when we transition to fully online, we already had all the tools and all the frameworks to make this happen. So it wasn't such a big deal. And I think that what will be permanent is that for everyone else and for the whole world, we will learn that, um, that harnessing digital technologies, harnessing social media and harnessing digital presence is actually something that can really enrich a physical in-person class. And hopefully all of us in the future, when we get back to normal, we will have more of that in all the teaching that we do. You know? That's great. Um, but I mean, on, on those lines, a lot of students have uh, have actually dropped their plans for, for pursuing master's degrees. And, uh, you know, mostly because of the fact that uh, I mean, at least this is what I've, I've uh, received as feedback that they've, uh, for courses that are abroad, right, where you have to travel to a different country and, and, and take part in those courses, they've, uh, the fact that it's online only has, has uh, sort of financially become uh, a little bit uh, difficult for them to, to convince themselves that, okay, yes, I need to, uh, you know, pay in euros while uh, studying in India, right? And uh, and still not be able to actually be there, interact with people in person. Do you think? Have you have you received that kind of feedback, uh, Aldo and, and Jose? I have received some of that, but uh, on our end, for example, uh, and this is this is data that is actually public. I think. Uh, Harvard saw an increase, a global increase in applications this year of around 25%, uh, which means that for some reason, people are still, I don't know if it's about this particular university or if it's about the fact that next year is looking a bit brighter than this one, but we saw a really large increase in applications. Similarly, I've also heard that, yes, not being able to be present is a problem and it's a deterrent and it's not helping the experience. But I've also heard from people that actually being living in, in their home countries has made their education more affordable because now they only have to pay tuition, but they don't have to pay the really expensive. For example, Boston is really, really expensive to live in. So if you come here, um, so living at home with their parents, yeah, the experience may not have been as great, but they have saved a lot of money. So it's that's what I was thinking. You, you probably got it increased because you know, like they're now now it's accessible to an audience that doesn't have to move, you know, to a different country or uh, a different part of the world. Uh, and it's not like it, you know, it's it's. I can imagine the <clears throat> increase because I think probably that option wasn't available before. Like maybe if the option was available before maybe you would see a decrease because you would still have those people but like less of like the in-person people but now 
it's like COVID forced a lot of universities to open up that availability. Good. I think uh, another, um, before we get on to edutech, I think one more uh, area of interest for regarding this is, is uh, accreditation. And this is, I think, something that Mike will also have an, uh, a, a sort of opinion on. Uh, do you think accreditation needs to somehow change, uh, you know, maybe the uh, the way that people, uh, that, that authorities actually give, provide accreditation and uh, do, do various courses? Do you think that has something, some impact on it? I mean, that that's going to be something that's, whether we agree or not, it's, it's not going to be something that's easy to change because um, that is kind of, you know, just what, you know, like in order to change that, you have, you would have to start to get companies to, you know, ignore degrees, uh, um, which would be kind of like in the ideal world, everyone would just focus on like how good someone's work is and not really their you know, maybe their their degree, but that that's just like saying, uh, I don't know. It's just it's just something that's just not um, going to happen easily, um, in my opinion. Uh, you know, you, you just need a degree, and also it's like a business. So, uh, but uh, definitely, a, you know, accreditation is important. Uh, like you know, like any diploma. It's, kind of a key it's, it's just a part of the, the kind of key to get you into you know other other um, opportunity uh, but you know uh, <clears throat> on the other hand so uh, you know I, I agree kind of also you know what, what Jose was saying was like this kind of like hybrid for you know because we're also doing that for um, our master's degree um, but it depends, like also on the, you know, the what is, like it doesn't have to be like this all the time. It depends, like what is the education actually like, like I couldn't imagine Jose doing that for parametric camp, right? Because it's like, it's not like a full months long course. Like it's short bursts of of knowledge, and it's it's live and it's entertaining and it's fun, um, and you know it's it's. You know, um, and even, you know, with Sushant, who's doing a lot of webinars, which, uh, I think you're just doing it live, I think, Sushant, I don't know. Uh, but um, it, dep it depends on, like, how substantial the class is, you know, like, because I think you don't always have to be, you don't always have to be that, like, fine-tuned, I would say. Um unless it's like a kind of substantial class, then then it's important because again, like if there's so much information, people need to go back to that information. It's like a long-term thing because, you know, our brains can only handle so much. And I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine teaching like, I don't know, three months class without any recording. It would just be like, I think you wouldn't yourself even remember everything taught or, that information that you've given, um, but the, you know, for the you know, for like for instance, like for a four-hour webinar, you know, I'm not going to like record it and post-produce it and 
you know, we're just going to like teach it through and have fun with it. And, um, just because it's just like not necessary and it wastes, you know, it wastes time, I think. You know, so, um, but, you know, for, for, for a degree, um, definitely like we, we, we're, you know, doing that. But um, I think for us, accreditation was important because, um, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like you need money to buy things from the store. Like it's just one of those things that you need to get like, you know, somewhere. So um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're just trying, I think all of us, everyone in this here, whether you're working at a university or, or, or not, it's like kind of trying to like break the rules a bit and think a bit differently and think a bit out of the box. Um, <laughs> I mean, for us, the for me, the really funny thing is like, uh, you know, we, we have quite a bit of, I mean, we got you know a lot of people uh, interested in our masters and registered and enrolled, which was really really cool. But then you know we have you know we hear these these kind of rumors from from this kind of like uh, I don't know these kind of maybe jaded dinosaur professors who are like oh it's not a real degree, but they don't really know it's just because like kind of like we're taking their students, you know, so uh, because we're looking toward the future and not toward the past or present or old models. Um, so that kind of like, <laughs> that kind of drives me as well, like knowing that uh, we can actually make that difference. And if people are getting, if people also in a kind of education position are, are getting upset about it, that to me tells me we're doing something correct. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I always, you know, if you, if no one's like mad at it, I think you're just not really doing something that's kind of new and and pushing. You know, uh, if no one's feeling like there's a resistance against it, um, so that's always good uh, for me. I think that that drives me to want to do it more. <laughs> that's um, a fun way to live life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because anytime something, it's you know, it's it's this it's the kind of mentality of like the the parents hearing the kids' music and they're like, oh, these kids and their damn music, you know, because like, it's like every generation likes their music and does not really understand the new generation. You know, it's, it's this kind of mentality, you know? And then that music that the the, the, the parents are usually against is, is like the music that becomes like the thing, right? Like there was like rock and roll and then hip hop, you know, it's just like, you know, so if there's you know some this. kind of persistence. Jose is actually a DJ on the site, right? <laughs> wow, you've done your research, Manit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. Okay. But yeah, that's no. I think that's the cranky me. That's the old me. When I when I look at TikTok and I'm like, what are these youngsters doing? What is TikTok about? Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> yeah, but we we all think that way. But but like they're, I mean, they're the ones that are that are like. 16 years old making like a million dollars of posts so i mean who who's really the the fool in this situation I know. <laughs> yeah. you know um but yeah we we definitely like a lot of, for us i mean we had a lot of interest from students uh, a lot of people already already signed up um uh, to more than we expected which is really awesome um, pretty awesome yeah, I think, yeah. Um, but, you know, what comes with that is always kind of uh, 
No, because you have to remember, like, you're you're taking other people's students. And that's, like, like not why we're doing it, but, like, it's the reality of the situation, you know? Um, and there's, um, there's something to be said about you're also probably catering to an audience that was not excited about other models. And maybe because you're offering a new model, that's you're getting new audiences. So... Yeah. I'm not sure exactly. It's like a, it's like a, how do they call that? Like a positive negative game. Like it's not a subtraction game. It's yeah. just you're, yeah, you're providing. Yeah. Well, our, our, our goal, like, uh, you know, whatever the outcomes are of like these kind of side things, I mean, our goal is to like give people the education that we feel is going to benefit them. Like that, that's the goal, like to give you the knowledge and information that's going to benefit you. And how are we giving this to you? Because we have, teaching it 20 tutors who are using this stuff every day in the real world in actual offices this is what they're teaching this is they're they're not just teaching they're teaching you what they do every day they've gotten jobs with this they're getting promotions with this they're getting positions with this they're doing these things with this i mean this it, you know these are all real people working at you know big and zaha and this and that like these these are real you know, real people doing this kind of stuff that that was kind of like our goal. But I actually have a, 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 a thing for you, for for you um, with the hybrid model and the recordings. Like one thing that we all deal with, I think, is like then these recordings can be passed around, right? So maybe isn't the degree the thing that that kind of defines who actually it's like verification right that's like your it's like your instagram verification right it's like who actually did it and who pirated it i don't know <laughs> like it's it's you know that that's the other the, the thing i wonder like is it now that like people can just pirate entire harvard courses you know that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> Would worry about that aspect. I would be curious to know. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying, would Harvard be worried about such things, or you as a tutor uh, would be worried about such things that your course can be replicated or pirated and stuff like that? Um, Is that a concern? I think, I think we have. I think I'm going to subscribe Michael's words. I think instead of looking at the past, we have to look at, at the future and we have to we have to change our minds a little bit. I did, so the, the decision making that we followed, that I followed when opening up the, that course to to the world was basically, was basically thinking that first of all, I wasn't really teaching anything that was new. So I teach a lot of computational geometry. I teach a lot of Grasshopper, a lot of C-sharp programming, and all of those things are things that with enough time and with some guidance, you could learn by buying the right books or watching the right YouTube tutorials. So the only thing that I really do in my class is like I aggregate everything together in a curriculum that I think integrates them in a nice way with some pacing and with some exercises to illustrate that. Really, there's nothing novel. I'm not bringing in new knowledge or anything, really. It's just it's consolidated stuff. And um, and I think also, so, so in that sense, 
the only thing that I contribute is the angle or the, or the curriculum that I have crafted around those ideas. And then it is true that I faced a little bit of resistance from the organization before I, I opened all the lectures up. But my point when I did that was, I don't think we are going to prevent anyone from wanting to come to Harvard because they watched all those videos and now they have taken the class, right? And now they're just not going to apply. If anything, the only thing that that does is like it triggers more interest about the work that we do in the university and about, and about how this opens a door to like other courses or other learning that we offer in the community. So as soon as the, the institution actually realized that that was the possibility, they, it was absolutely fine. And then where I draw the line personally is to, Mike, to Mike's point, I didn't want to share the videos of behind closed doors because honestly, Anyone can download them at the, at the end of the day. They can put them on a trend so that everyone can pirate that however they want. So why don't we, why are we just not open about it? It's public, it's on YouTube, no limitations, etc. Where I draw the line is it's about the experience of taking the class. So my class has yeah. a lot of assignments. It has a final project. And you, if you take the class at the university, you get to work with my team, with my teaching assistants, my teaching fellows, and with me. And yeah. that is an experience that I don't know how to do or how to replicate digitally. And that's why that at this moment is only limited to people who actually come and take the class. So I've actually had people, uh, this year has been the first year that I've had students that had gone through the whole curriculum video from last year, but still they enrolled and they took the class because they were excited about it. And I was like, but, but why are you still coming to the lectures? And they're like, because it's fun. We just like hanging out, you know, it's cool. And we get to do the assignments, you know, so. Yeah. And I think that's where the modern thinking kicks in because it's important now that we have an online presence, that we have social media, and that the things that we do are not closed doors, are not behind closed doors in an organization, but they're open to the general world. Interesting. Another interesting thing that's happened. Right. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Pranit, go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, Sushant, I, mean, I think you, you had a bit of lag, which is why uh, you got cut off. Go on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was saying I can pretty much relate to that, in fact, because, uh, uh, you know, we also have students who are kind of crossing over different workshops and programs. And sometimes we also wonder that, you know, you've learned this thing already. Why would you want to, you know, get yourself back into another program? And they always talk about this experience, which is exactly what is, uh, you know, creates that whole educational model where students get, get to experience the whole idea of learning. And they're not only learning what they just see online, but also the experience of, again, working on assignments and, you know, doing the, you know, collaborations and coming up with something new. That's an aspect of, uh, you know, of the design. And also taking cues from what, what Michael was talking about, the, you know, accrediting uh, uh, aspect of it. You know, somewhere, I think one has to, uh, I mean, from, from a student's perspective, one has to redefine the whole meaning of education and a degree, you know, what exactly does it give you? Is it, It's like, if you have a degree, you will get a job. You know, I think those times have absolutely changed. It's, it's all based on the skill sets that one possesses. It is not based on 
if you graduated from an institution which was you know uh, an an a, a level university or a b level university it's it's to do with the individual skill set that one possesses so you know we are in a very interesting uh, uh, you know transition right now i believe you know as jose has also been mentioning uh, and we have to kind of change our mindset and i think we can see that changing uh, amongst the general audience already where people are starting to adapt to new ways of of learning uh and yeah i think i remember like from uh, from the smart labs program that we run it's 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 actually a six month program which is now almost spread to about eight to nine months every year uh when we started it was actually a hybrid program and uh, this was in 2017 where we thought we would have a couple of uh, you know studio sessions and some online sessions where online sessions would actually be just you know complementing the studio sessions that we had and over the time with covid coming in as well if we saw a sudden shift in the mindset of people and how they are grasping things online as well and we had to kind of you know flip the entire model uh, the teaching model of it to have online sessions as the teaching sessions studio sessions are complementing the online sessions so i think this transition and shift is very very exciting and i think this is something that is going to happen in the you know years to come uh because the ways of teaching and the ways of learning both have been changing and i think at the end of the day the experience that one gathers out of any kind of program be it online or you know in person it's all about what you learn in it and how you apply that in your respective you know professions uh so yeah but i think since pranith you mentioned about the edu tech you know i think there is a definitely a very growing uh, market if i may use the word it's, it's slightly a commercial term to use but there is a growing market of edu tech where uh you know new technologies can be built for creating better educational models which i think is going to be very interesting and i think we're going to see that in the next couple of years uh, in different ways failing and succeeding both so i think we're all in the transition transitional phase i would say in fact uh, that reminds me of in just the previous discussion we had uh, the panel panel discussion on xr Uh, Cameron Yunham from Fologram have joined us, and he talked about their uh, product called App Studio, App Dot Studio. Uh, and basically, what they tried to doing there is they tried to create a tool for online juries, right? So when you have uh, architectural juries and you're actually presenting your design, doing that remotely through Zoom can often be you know just the presenter presenting one sheet and. the the people judging the jury the jury itself they they can't really you know walk around like they would in a physical panel uh, and so they tried to create a tool around that uh, he mentioned it didn't really work out very well as a product but uh, yeah i mean what are your thoughts on that mike do you have any ideas on have you have you tried xr uh, or or any kind of other tools for juries and stuff Are you asking me? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it doesn't need to be so compl- complicated. Um, 
I think I think one thing that's happened with with COVID is that um, I think we're a lot of people are trying to solve a lot of problems that aren't really problems or like over solving them or over complicating them um, to the point where it's like okay to join this thing you need a you need a RTX thirty ninety graphics card with a three thousand dollar VR headset um, and be plugged into a wall and uh, uh, this top mic and camera it's it's like <laughs> I lo- I just feel like it, it's it's like I don't know and then you you go in here and you do this and you look at this and you talk to this person I mean um, it's all nice and fun right um, but I think it's I think it doesn't need to be like so complex or like there's not really so much a problem. Uh, Like for instance, I just think about uh, the the guys uh, who we're friends with doing Illusor, you know, like it was like, to me, it was nice because you could use the VR, you could not use the VR, you know, the, the platform was already there and they just kind of implemented into it. You know, it's like, I don't. Know. I just think it doesn't need to be more complex than that. Um, you know, I have a, a, for instance, I have a VR headset, and I found myself using the non-VR version of it more than the VR version of it, just for convenience. You know, it's like it's not all always so easy to like just set up in your living room. You know, depending on how big a space you live in, with your every time with your VR, and then like be in VR for so many hours and. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I had that option, but I found myself just like when I was joining those events, like just doing like the kind of desktop version of it, you know? Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm just not, I'm just not convinced that like, uh, a lot of those, like, for instance, like with, with Fologram, like, you know, what they're doing with construction is like super useful and like, that's that's like the future, right? Like, so you don't have to document, like you can see the things on site. Like that's a problem that needs to be solved. And like, that's like such a, you know, once that AR becomes more accessible, like that's so useful um, as a solution for that. Like for for people that, construction workers to just see it, you know, like to see where things need to be placed and what is, is like invaluable, I think. Um, and also just saves time. That's another thing. Like it saves time, like on the, the designer's end, because you don't have to document, you don't have to like redundantly document. It's like you already have a 3D model. Why do you need to document it again in 2D? And, you know, all these books and this and that. It's kind of like getting rid of a redundancy. But um, I don't know. I've been on panels and like I was never like, man, this Zoom is just not enough. You know, like it, it was. It's fine, you know. Like uh, <laughs> um, that's just me, you know. Like, <laughs> in my review, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it, but it was like it's, it's like for that thing. Like, does it need to be more than that? Because I don't know. Because e- either way, it's always that. It's like you're still looking at s- screens. You're just either as an avatar looking at screens or just looking at a screen. I don't know. Unless there was some kind of other experience, then it would be different. That's great. Um, I think coming to EduTech, um, 
one of the major concerns that a lot of students have uh, is is during covid and and during this crisis a lot of um, free workshops and you know small webinars a lot of uh, in in their in the community's words noise has come about in the edutech uh, industry and and um, you know low quality stuff from people who are themselves maybe students and you know coming up with uh, uh, paid and and uh, short uh, for profit kind of low quality workshops and and what are your thoughts on that uh, sushant well, let's find all of them and ban them from our social media is all i can say yeah. <laughs> uh, there's plenty of that stuff happening and you know to be honest uh, uh, we as as an organization do feel that it's very unfair not just uh, if somebody kind of you know replicates the content from a, a workshop into a free workshop or another for profit workshop i don't think anybody has a problem if you know somebody else is also doing a similar workshop there's plenty of things that one is doing uh but i think the problem is very unfair for the students to be a part of an academic program where the tutor is less experienced or has just gained some technical knowledge or experience in trying to use that for a commercial purpose i don't think there is anything wrong in that per se if you have if you're doing it in the right spirit and with the right permissions uh but there is a growing problem of things getting recorded and again i'm going to touch the aspect of piracy as well because i kind of relate both these things uh, in a similar way that there is a lot of piracy happening people are exchanging content there are free workshops happening but there is nothing wrong in a free workshop or a free education i myself have been part of workshops where we were providing knowledge for free but at the same time also doing programs where we were obviously asking for uh, a fee for a workshop because again we have to run the organization so uh, i don't think there's some anything wrong in that if somebody does that as well but there is a growing percentage of people who are a part of an academic program only to be able to replicate that into something else if you are innovating that if you are using let's say if if i'm if somebody is using my knowledge which i am giving to 40 people if two of them are using that knowledge and adding value to that and taking it to the next level i'll be more than happy and uh, you know delighted as an educator that i managed to be a part of that innovation chain but if somebody does that and does not really do justice to what you know i have done uh, i think it's 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 kind of demeaning at times and a lot of times people think that it goes unnoticed uh, as far as i know that we do notice such things and i know like mike and myself uh, you know have had a lot of exchanges about and discussions about these things a lot of times because we have been doing a lot of programs and uh so i think these things are happening there are problems i've had my students uh, you know replicate content from our you know elaborate programs but then again i've also realized and come to terms with it that you can't do much about it to be honest it actually should give you a drive to keep innovating and and keep raising the bar so that it becomes it doesn't become something which is easy to replicate 
in in a wrong way you know which which demeans its value so that is something that i have come to terms with and i've understood that again that an experience that uh someone can gain if if i am interacting with them and very similar to what jose was saying you know i have a teaching team which kind of you know works with the students or a group of students from a particular batch of workshop for example uh you know if any one person is replicating that and using using the scripts to you know create another program to be honest we don't bother much about it now but there had been times which uh, we did feel that okay it's it's ethically wrong as well but then nothing much you can do about it i was a part of a program where you were handed out the curriculum on first day right. that doesn't mean the university would be scared that i will go out and take that curriculum and go to another university to create another program if that was the fear of anyone that everything would happen behind closed doors but that's not the case you know at the end of the day we are we are educators and it's a community of educators and everybody is learning and we ourselves are learning while we are teaching to be honest so i think one has to be slightly open about it a mindset has to change and adapt to it and that's the only way to deal with it this is what my perspective is i think jose mentioned he has to uh, leave soon i hope you have like a minute to answer this yeah uh, so so in architecture there's a lot of and you've worked with with uh, a lot of recently also with robotics and and uh, you know 3d printing and stuff like that um so do you think there's um some kind of loss in in uh, value uh, for the students when when they're working with these things remotely do you think there's uh, i mean the of course you can access ro- robots uh, remotely and stuff like that but do you think there's a loss of of that education value for setting the robot up actually getting hands on with these things i mean in architecture of course there's construction techniques and stuff like that also that requires a lot of hands on experience do you think that have you felt that uh, lacking well, a little bit of shelf pro- shameless self promotion we just did that yesterday in parametric camp we had a live stream yeah, where we just... opened it up for people to just control this robot that i have in my apartment right now <laughs> and there was this guy from japan arasto who was controlling it all the way from the other side of the world which was, was kind of cool i think i think to your point one of the opportunities that this remoteness has opened for in particular the case of robotics and 3d printing is that um i and this is the cranky computational professor now talking which is that i i believe a lot of the people who engage in digital fabrication and in robotics tend to not invest enough time in learning the computational logic in the code and some of the mathematics that are behind it and they just rely on using somebody else's tools which is bad to say as someone who writes tools for people to use robots but <laughs> my point here being that the fact that we are re- we have been remote for so long has actually encouraged a lot of people to work on simulations and learn more about the code that run these things which i think has been beneficial because a lot of the problems about why people don't do more stuff with robots is because they don't know how to program robots and they just use whichever plugin or whichever program they have available at that point Which is right you say it made it more realistic. I mean it it made the use case more realistic, I think. Cuz what are the chances that you have a I mean not many people have access to a robot or have a robot in their in their kitchen or you know like so if anything 
COVID or this online stuff made kind of the use case, uh, you know, what it more likely would be, which is like remote or someone else even doing something else. Like, yeah, no, absolutely, totally. Mm-hmm. My point being, this has helped a lot of people focus on the computational aspects of making physical artifacts, and that makes me happy. <laughs> because I like computation. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Thank you very much, everyone. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Pranit, for organizing. Michael, Sushant. Always a pleasure. Good to hang out. Thank you very much. Yeah. Keep it up. Right. And keep nice. changing the world. Yeah. <laughs> One student at a time. Absolutely, yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. In, in case you had any other addition to, to what Jose was mentioning, you can, you can add that. No, I mean, about robotics, I, I told you that we started to uh, explore how to control remotely those robots uh, online mm-hmm. uh, with our students uh, in their rooms or with other students remotely with the Global Summer School, uh, maybe in India or Mexico. Uh, and I mean, it was uh, incre- impressive also the possibility to start engaging with digital simulation to make them understand the logic behind, uh, but then also to establish together with other instructors from other universities, uh, protocols that could allow us to control machines uh, and uh, material uh, uh, characteristics as well, no? Uh, I mean, when you start to deal with digital fabrication, you realize also how physical is it uh, and how much uh, you need to uh, somehow uh, balance material properties uh, with your uh, design protocols or whatever the machine as well can achieve. So for sure is a third element that is incredibly important to to manipulate uh, and and control. Uh, And in that sense, uh, for me, I I guess teaching robotics provides you again another interesting, uh, I guess, uh, interconnection between the digital and physical environment because because it has to deal with uh, an extremely physical uh, medium, which is the material, but through protocols and instruction that starts from a digital uh, realm. So it's a very, uh, very interesting tool to, to also maybe explore what is possible to design and, uh, and manipulate digitally, but according to limitation that at the end are just inspiration for your creativity no? to push further these uh and, co- and convert those challenges in new languages no that we can uh, uh, trigger at least this is what we are trying to explore uh, at ayak but again with the collaboration of of, of a community of uh, uh, thinkers uh, and you guys are also part of it uh, that push every day what uh, an architect can be tomorrow and this is the beauty of i think i guess uh, uh, the beautiful message from this conversation and in general from uh, the moment we are leaving. So that said, uh, with this, with the sea in front of me and, the, and no clouds in the sky, uh, I'm gonna say goodbye. I wish to see you here very soon. I've been trying to do, to bring the guy with the hat uh, a couple of times, uh, but you guys are also invited. Very cool hat, actually. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Super cool, Mike. And a big hat. Yeah, Sushant, you made a beautiful comment before. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to tell you that I really appreciate also your words 
uh, and it was a pleasure to have the opportunity to, to meet you. I'm sorry that my, I think my camera cannot even turn on. I'm sorry. Uh, but that said, we'll have more opportunities very soon for sure. For sure, for sure, absolutely. And congratulations to Granit to organize this, uh, this event. It was a pleasure. Michael, I see you soon. Yep. See you. Bye. Have a great day at the beach. <laughs> you do, guys. <laughs> bye bye.